Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third episode of the Finance for Students podcast. I'm Gavin Chang. And I'm Matthias Rui. Uh, today, our guest is Jeffrey Ting. Uh, Mr. Ting attended the University of California at Berkeley, where he completed his bachelor's degree in economics and business administration. He launched his career at Merrill Lynch in 1997 with his brother, Jason. The two lead a 15-person team hosting over $2.1 billion of client assets out of the San Mateo office of Merrill Lynch, a Bank of America company. Mr. Ting, thank you so much for joining us. Nice. It's nice to be here and good to see you guys. Uh, so our first question is, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your path that brought you to work at Merrill Lynch and what you currently do there? Yeah. Um, so I, I grew up in the Bay Area and the Peninsula. Um, I'm a Burlingame High School kid and went to St. Matthew's and Cary School. And I think it was probably somewhere around high school where I got interested in stocks, like stock market. Um, part of that was family business. So my late father was actually um, in the stock market or a stock market investor and advisor for over 40 years. Um, and so ever since I've been always interested in the market. I did an internship um, with Merrill Lynch uh, during college as well. So I kind of knew that I wanted to do something um, in terms of money management or investments. Yeah. And so um, since you've been interested and in kind of around the stock market for so long, since you were in high school, have you seen uh, any ways that it has changed over the years? Um, it's definitely changed. Uh, I think the, the, the coming of, um, the coming of online uh, brokerage or, or discount brokerage has given a lot more people access to investments than previous, and that's a great thing. I think that's a really positive thing. Yeah, and so obviously students are, don't have large enough kind of investment accounts to go with someone like you and Merrill Lynch. So what tips do you have for students that are trying to get into the stock market? Start small, right? Um, everyone's got to start from somewhere. And keep adding over time. Um, I found that some of the most successful investors are actually consistent investors. It's not like you put your money in and you set and forget it. It's you're always checking in on it. You're adding money where it makes sense. And you could start nowadays with online brokerage. You could probably start as, as little as like a couple hundred dollars. And you do that every month or every couple of months or as you save more money, um, and maybe you have a part-time job um, and you're living at home, so hopefully your expenses are still kind of low, you can use that money to invest long-term. And, and today, in terms of the types of investments, there's a lot of different types of investments that you can buy that will give you a diversified portfolio. So you might have heard of index funds. The most common index is the S&P 500. So you could buy an index fund and that'll give you instant diversification. The other thing I tell people is buy what you know. Like if you don't understand how that company or that whatever instrument or, you know, recently it was like cryptocurrency or how they're making money, then you probably want to move to something else that you know or are familiar with. So you were talking about how people should be consistently investing a couple hundred dollars every single month. Are there any savings tips that you have that you'd recommend for anyone? Do you think that people who have smaller incomes can still save and invest? 100%. 
absolutely. Um, I, I think regardless of the income that you have, you there's a way where you can make it work. Um, and it's it's really looking at what are the essentials versus what are the things that are more on a discretionary nature. Um, and you know, I think we're we're in a world where we buy a lot of things, but how many of those things do you actually need, right? Um, and so I think it, that budget is the ideal first place to start and just go from there. Yeah, uh, and so I don't know if you've heard of it, but ChatGPT has been kind of blowing up a little bit for the AI and how advanced it is. Uh, do you see uh, in the future that AI will eliminate the need for investment uh, analysts and advisors? Yeah, it, it's a it's a common question because nowadays AI is running a lot of investment for, portfolios for people, right? Where you could put your money in and it's just doing what it does automatically and the trading is all automated as well, right? Um, really, my financial advisor role takes it down to more personal level and I think that's one thing that AI can't get. AI cannot understand that you want to cover your kid's education or you don't want to cover your kid's education because you had to work for it, so you want them to work for it, right? You want them to be a little hungry. AI can't figure that stuff out, right? Those things that are personal to an individual that's important to them, um, that's something that you can't put in numbers. Um, and so I think it's that role as a financial advisor where we take personal responsibility for making sure that our clients achieve their life goals which is more important than the numbers right you've got all this money or you've you're saving money well what's the purpose and we can bring it down to that personal level where ai unfortunately it's not there yet yeah and so i guess another thing kind of building off of the whole um like tools to, for investing uh, recently, I've been seeing quite a few people just using charts that have predictions based on previous uh, stock performance. And so are there any validity to those? Uh, again, it's just another investment strategy. That's a way to think about it. Uh, there's technical analysts, one of the most well-known technical analysts at Merrill Lynch, Marianne Bartels. Um, she's great at following charts and moving averages. And you hear something called head and shoulders charts where it kind of looks like a head and shoulders and determining what the bull market or bear market indicators are. And for us, it's really another investment strategy that hopefully will give you rates of returns better than if you left that money in the checking account, right? So I wouldn't say it's it's a, it's a bad thing to like follow charts and try to make predictions. I'll, I will tell you, it's very hard to predict the stock market. Number one, number one thing, I think very few people, if any, can successfully predict what the stock market is going to do tomorrow and the next day and the next day, right? If you ask anyone whether it's up or down, you're going to get a 50-50 answer. And so for us, our investment philosophy goes back to keep it simple, buy the things that you know, keep it diversified, and continue to add to that portfolio over time and make sure that your money is continuing to grow and it's not going to be every year. Like last year was a tough year in the markets and you've got to be able to hang in there for the long term and ride that market back up. If you think about it, history of the stock market, there's been corrections. There's always been corrections, like right? the markets are down 20, 30 percent. 
there has not been a correction that we have not come back from, right? So it's about being able to stay disciplined and in that seat. And I think over a long period of time, you'll, you'll do well. Are there any like mistakes or regrets that you have in investing? Um, yeah, we always make mistakes as investors, right? We, we try to learn from them. I think, I think number one, it's, it's getting caught up in the hype. Um, I started in the business back in 1997 and you guys were too young, but 1997, that was the start of the whole dot com, right? We didn't have really mainstream internet before then. So we had Netscape and internet and all these internet companies. And there was this huge wave of dot com companies that didn't have earnings and they ended up going under. Right, they're you know they're selling pet stuff online. They're selling toys online, and all those companies went under um, because they just didn't make their targets. They couldn't survive their burn rate, and I think that's probably one of my early mistakes that I learned as a as a rookie in the business is like you've got to be careful of the hype because it comes. I mean, GameStop's a recent example. Cryptocurrency's a re recent example, and you just got to make sure that you stay disciplined with your investing and don't get caught up with those hype kind of investments. Uh, and so kind of shifting over to a different topic, uh, I know you have a little bit or more than a little bit of experience here also. Can students begin to build credit now? And if so, why is building credit so important? Absolutely, 100% students can start building credit now. Um, the easiest way to do that now, and I don't know if your parents will approve this, is to add you as an authorized signer on their credit card you can kind of piggyback on their good credit, right? Credit companies, they want to know that you have a history of paying your bills on time and in full, all right? And the more you can do that, the more you can build your credit, which does help you down the road when it comes to, well, now I need to get a credit card or I need to get an auto loan or eventually I want to buy a house. And if you have a good credit score, it can number one, help you on the interest rate and number two, speed you up on the approval process. So it can be done. Um, and there are, I think there's like student builder loans that you can take out as well. And they basically wanna see that you're gonna make those payments on time and pay it in full, right? And if you can build that track record, whether it's piggybacking on your parents' credit or you know, or opening up your own student build loan um, builders account, um, that's a, I think that's a great thing for you to establish long-term. You know, I didn't really build credit till after college. So if you do it after college, it's not a whole, it's not the end of the world. It's not a horrible thing. All right. You still have time to do that. Are there any businesses that you'd recommend a student starts? Um, well, I think there's a lot of businesses nowadays, more so than when we were growing up in my generation, um, because the internet makes it so much easier and low cost for you to number one get connected to people so if you're thinking of like a drop ship business or you know like selling on amazon or anything like that you could get started up pretty low um if you have a good idea and get connected to you know suppliers all over the world or manufacturers all over the world and see ratings and all that kind of stuff yeah uh, and so do you have any kind of comments or tips for a student that would so, I don't know, say after this show, want to go into investing with the current markets? Um, stay current with the news, number one. Um, and not so much like 
the the regular news you see on TV, start to start to look at stuff like CNBC or pick up a Wall Street Journal or pick up an Economist because they've got some pretty interesting stuff in there. It's not all dry stock market stuff, but it's stuff that will give you ideas on investing, investment portfolios, investment theory. I have um, a couple of things. I don't know. Do you guys have time? I can read a couple of the references of books that I highly recommend if you if your users want to go check them out. Yeah, um, sure. That sounds great. Okay, here's some of the books that I I have just kind of handy, and I think they're great references for individuals that want to get into investing. Um, the first one is called "I Want More Pizza" by Steve Burkholder. The second one is Rich Dad, Poor Dad for Teens. You've probably heard of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and that's Robert Kiyosaki. He made a book specifically for teens, um, The Total Money Makeover by Dave Ramsey, The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham, and then the last one I have on my list is Stocks for the Long Run by Jeremy Siegel. So you're you check out any of those, read through them. They're great reads. They're fast reads. They're interesting reads, but I think that's a great way to really dip your toe into okay, I'm kind of getting interested in investing. Yeah. Uh, and so the last title of the books you read was Investing for the Long Run. And that kind of made me think about what, since we're so young, what the best investment strategy would be for the long run. Like if you had to choose one, would it be like dollar cost averaging with like um, an index fund or like dividend stocks or? Uh, I would say dollar cost averaging with an index fund is good, right? That's a great basic to kind of get you started. Um, and then maybe adding adding to the portfolio as you continue to go. Um, you can do sectors, right? You can, you can buy a financial sector index or you can buy an energy index or you can buy a consumer discretionary index. So you can healthcare biotech, right? There's a lot of index plays. And then you go even further and then you start adding individual stocks. So my, my goal when I teach investors to invest is start with the basics, but then grow and expand to there. And not only stocks, think about businesses, right? Think about um, think about real estate. You, you hear a lot about real estate investing. Think about real estate stocks that you can buy. So there's a lot of things about, aside from the basic S&P 500 index, where as you continue to build your portfolio, just continue to diversify it, um, own more things. And the end goal is you want your money to be working for you. You don't want it to be just sitting there in the bank account. Um, and this is money for the long run. And when we say long run, it's generally seven to 10 years or more. That's like a long run investment, right? It's not money that you need tomorrow to buy a car, right? You're not going to invest that money, but it's money that you're willing to invest for a longer period of time. Have you guys heard or you guys might have seen slides um, about the magic penny. Have you guys heard of that? The one that doubles every day? Yeah. So that's one of the basics of investing is like the magic penny. I'll give you a million dollars today. You can walk away with it. Or I'll give you a penny that doubles every day for the next 30 days. Well, that penny turns into a $5.3 million pot of money. And that's the power of compounding, which is when you're investing, the idea is like, okay, average stock returns are eight to 10%. Well, eight to 10% is good, 
but if your eight to ten percent continues to make eight to ten percent and then you make another eight to ten percent on that eight to ten percent that's the compounding that works in your favor and so that's why i always say continue investing keep adding to portfolios over a long period of time that's going to grow faster than your million dollars that i'm handing you today would it be possible for you to talk a little bit about hedge funds and mutual funds and things like that yeah so there is this um growing area called alternative investments um and if you think about your typical mutual fund or exchange traded fund like the S&P 500, they buy and hold, right? So hedge funds is a different kind of strategy where they're looking for arbitrage or they're looking for little ways that they can make money consistently over a period of time. And that's another way to diversify your portfolio. It's another way to make money. And typically they're looking for spread opportunities or if a company's getting taken over, maybe that company's undervalued. So they'll take a big position, and then when that company gets taken over, then they'll sell their position and make that profit, whatever that is, right? And so it's another way to invest. Um, it does require higher minimums to invest in those. The other area of alternative investments is private private equity investing or private, private investments. Um, if you think about the stock market, well, the stock market is public investments, right? You could buy Cisco, you could buy IBM, you could buy Google. Private investments is, think about the early investors that invested in Google before they went IPO on the market. So there's this whole subsector of private investors and really well-known private investment firms that will help individuals place money into companies before they go IPO. Um, you were mentioning ChatGPT, right? Well, ChatGPT is a private company, so an investor says, well, how can I get access to put my money into ChatGPT before they go IPO? Again, similar thing, there's qualifications to be able to do that, and then there's private investors that will help them get access to those types of investments. Again, for me, I look at it as building out that core portfolio, continuing to do that. Uh, yeah, but uh, with private investments, it seems like there's a lot of reward to be had. Uh, but does that also mean that there's a larger risk when going into smaller companies that haven't gone public That's yet? That's correct, yeah. There is. There, it, it is a risk-reward. Um, you always hear about different seed-level funding of companies, like a Round A or Series A, Series B, Series C. So the later series are a little bit more mature um, private companies, the early ones are like the higher risk, right? So you need to make sure that you tailor it to your overall investment portfolio. Some of it is okay, too much of it, maybe that's not appropriate, right? Um, and again, it goes back to that goal setting. Like, what's your goal for this money? And based on your goal for this money, yeah, you can get higher returns with this portion, but we want to make sure that that's the right amount of, based on your overall portfolio and what you have. Uh, so since kids are, or students are usually investing lower sums of money and it's, you know, like it's not as vital for your like retirement or staying afloat, do you think that students should invest into riskier opportunities or should they stay with the safer bets? Um, I think, I think, I think to start, you should stay with the safer bets. I think it'll be, it'll be tough for you to get qualified to invest in private investments. Um, it Again, a lot of these private investments, if you invest in a private company and it doesn't go IPO for like five or 10 years, 
well, your money's locked in there for five or 10 years. You can't get out, right? So you want to take that in, into consideration. So I think for students, you probably want to stay with the basics for now and build out that portfolio. I think that's a great way to go um, at, if you're kind of in that beginner investment category. Yeah, well, thank you everyone for watching uh, this episode of the Finance for Students podcast. And thank you, Mr. Ting, for meeting with us. Thank you so much.